lost a loved one recently? Do you find it hard to move on with your life? There are lots of questions and a quest for a solution. Where do you start? Welcome to From Morning to Morning with your host, Rabbi Mel Glazer. Rabbi Mel and his guests are here to guide you through the different stages of grief and help you heal from your loss. You'll come away with a much better understanding of how you can move forward. Now, here's Rabbi Mel. Everybody, at least uh, where I am in Colorado Springs, it's um, it's evening, and I welcome you back. And uh, I missed you last week. I wasn't feeling so well, but now I feel just terrific. And so it's good to be back. One of the reasons I feel so good is because you are going to love my guest and what she is going to teach you. She is Dr. Donalyn Gross, and I'm going to read you a little bit from her biography, which she wrote. (laughs) I didn't make it up. She did all this stuff that she says. A PhD and certified music practitioner, I've been a thanatologist, death and dying counselor for over 35 years, working with the dying and their loved ones. I've been privileged to sit with hundreds of people as they died. As an LCSW, that's social worker, I've worked at Sunbridge Care and Rehab as a social worker, the Good Endings Program Director at Genesis Elder Care Heritage Hall West Nursing Home in Agawam, Massachusetts, in the prison system counseling terminally ill inmates, mostly with AIDS, an activity director at Heritage Woods Assisted Living Genesis Elder Care in Agawam, Massachusetts, at Bay State Medical Center in Springfield, Mass., as a medical transcriptionist secretary, and Wesson Women's Hospital as a receptionist. Presently, I teach death, dying, and bereavement at Bay Path University, provide end-of-life training workshops for healthcare professionals, and play, this is the most interesting for me, and play therapeutic music, bedside harp for the dying. We're going to talk about all that. So good evening, Donald. It's good to have you. Thank you so much. So um, we have a lot of people listening to us, and they're all over the world. Uh, I've got a big contingent in uh, England. Oh, Go yeah. figure. I don't know. <laughs> But that's the information they send me. So all you Brits out there, how are you? I don't know what time it is for you, but I'm glad to have you and just stick around. So, Donald, I'd like to start um, by asking you how you got started in this crazy business that Uh, you and I do. My father was a physician. Okay. And my mother's a nurse, so I was raised in a medical household. Okay. And growing up, I worked in the summers, I worked in nursing homes, doing activities, volunteer work, things like that. And I just saw so many people dying alone, and it really bugged me. It really bugged me. And about that time, and I'm going to show you how old I am now, but in the 60s when Elizabeth Kubler-Ross came around, I latched on to what she was doing, and I would go to her conferences and workshops. I said, that's what I want to do. I said, I don't want anybody to die alone. I want them to be loved and comfortable when they die. 
and yeah. I went from there. <laughs> um, so speaking of Elizabeth Kubler-Ross, um, do you, there's, there are a lot of people today who say there are no stages uh, to grief that you, or that there's no order to, um, to, to grief and mourning. What do you yeah, think? That's true. You can, um, you can stay in one stage forever. You can be angry until you die. You know, you can be de de uh, depressed until you die. I worked with a gentleman who was so angry and he was, he just, he was taking it out on everybody and it's not up to us as caregivers, family, whoever. It's not up to us to say, hey, you know, you've been in the anger stage too long. Move on. You know, it's okay. As long as they're physically not hurting themselves or somebody else, you know, we do go through stages. Not everybody accepts dying. Some do. Not everybody does. Do most? I mean, do most of the people that you sit with? Uh, are they in acceptance, or are well, they still the, the majority right now of the people that I work with are actively dying. So most of the time they're unresponsive, and that's right. when I play the harp for them. Uh, in the past, when I've worked in the prison system with inmates of, with AIDS, oh, that was back in the early 80s, and uh, oh, all different things happened, different stages, a lot of anger. A lot of uh, the guys turned to God. They turned to religion. A lot of them started writing their wills and having their families come in and write journals and, you know, finalizing things. Everybody's different. So I, my, when you, I myself, I've been ready for years. <laughs> yeah. Donald, stop that. My, my friend called me Tisha. You're going to live 120 years. That's how Oh, boy. <laughs> well, maybe not. But <laughs> some people say, uh, you know, that's a good Jewish phrase, 120 years, because that's how old Moses was when he died. Oh. So we say you should live to 120 years, but some people now say it's got to be 135 with, uh, you know, because years are not worth what they used to be worth. <laughs> so you have to live, you have to live longer. That's so for sure. when you were working with... Um, Prisoners, did you hear a, a lot of, um, I mean, were they sorry about what they had done or were they, you know, still saying, I'm, I'm not guilty? We, we didn't talk a lot about, you know, their past, what they did. Okay. Um, I, I worked with uh, people, murderers, I've, I've worked with uh, lesser offenses, they, they're a little bit guilty about what they've done to their families, you know. Uh, I'd say the majority of men that I worked with, they got AIDS from needles, from sharing needles and drugs. Right. But uh, where I worked, it was very interesting because sometimes we could, you know, the person's sentence was up and we could release them to go home but you had to be picked up by a family member. You know, they couldn't just let you walk out the door yourself. Yeah. And I saw a lot of the men being abandoned by their families because they had AIDS. They didn't want to talk to them. They didn't want to see them. So the guy had to die in prison. 
Oh, that's terrible. Uh, I, I worked. So, I worked for about five and a half years, and in those years, we lost over a hundred and twenty men from AIDS. Wow! So they'd, they'd come in looking like Arnold Schwarzenegger, you know, muscles and healthy, and you know, diet sixty pounds in a diaper. Yeah. But that's not how it is today. Today, they've got all these wonderful drug cocktails and everything, and people are living with AIDS, HIV. So. Yeah, that's what I was. I was thinking as you were talking about it that it it must be better today because oh, yeah. it's not a death sentence like it used to be. Yeah. Well, it's not something you and I would volunteer for, but I'm glad to know that it's not a death sentence yeah. anymore. Definitely. So I understand that your parents were both medical people. Yes. Um. Did anybody die early in your life that might have led you into the death field? No. <laughs> really? Not at all. It was working at a nursing home one summer in high school. And as I said, I just saw so many people, you know, abandoned by their families and dying alone. And that just killed me. I hated that. So that's Why, why do you think their families abandoned them? Well, a lot of times uh, we had dementia, Alzheimer's, and a lot of times um, they would forget their families, you know. When I worked as a social worker in a nursing home uh, in town here, and I used to, one of my units was an Alzheimer's unit, and I used to get so angry when I first started because, you know, when the, when the resident would come into the nursing home, the family was there and visiting and whatever, and as the patient progressed further into the disease, they didn't recognize the family. They didn't know who was who. They, you know, they, they disappeared more or less. And the families just, they couldn't take it. So they figured, well, you know, mom doesn't recognize me, so why should I go there all the time? And that yeah. kind of bugged me. I mean, I understand it, but it still bugged me. And yeah. I, used to, I used to do sing-alongs in the, in the unit because I, I play the piano and sing. And I would go into the dining room, and I'd say, hello, everybody. And everybody would just be sitting there kind of staring. And I would sit down at the piano and start, you are my sunshine. And it was like a light switch turned on. It was unbelievable. Everybody just snapped away. They, they knew the words to all the songs. It was incredible. And when I finished playing at the end of the hour, they just went right back into their little states. Wow. It was, yeah, it was just, wow, yeah. I remember a long time ago when I was a rabbi in um, a small town in Pennsylvania. So for, the, for Hanukkah, we used to go to the Jewish nursing home, and we would visit people. And on the third floor was the, what they love to call, like they do all over the world, a memory unit. Oh, yeah, yeah. Why they call it a memory unit when nobody has any memory up there, I I get it, but I don't get it. So similar kinds of things happen, you know. We would go in with dreidels and and all kinds of stuff, and and they were staring off into space, and you could talk to them, but they didn't talk back. Now, some of them were like the people that you just described. So when we started singing Hanukkah songs, you know, they would they would perk up because there's something, I believe there's something about music. Music, definitely. Changes people, yes, definitely. It goes right to the heart. It doesn't, there's no roadblocks. 
There's no, I mean, talking is different. Music, it just reminds you and goes right, right straight to your heart. And yeah. so even if you have no memory left, you remember the old time favorites. And I, I also remember that my grandmother, my bubby, may she rest in peace, when she was very ill, she's a very pious woman, and I was her favorite grandchild because because she was pious and because I, you know, started um, uh, knowing that I was going to be a rabbi. So when she was dying, my mother of blessed memory would say to me, you got to go over to Bubby's house and sing to her because she enjoys it. And I said, Mom, she doesn't know I'm there. Yes, she does. She enjoys it. So, you know, when you're 12 or 13 years old, your mother says you're going to do it. You're going to do it. <laughs> so I went over to Bobby's house and I started singing, you know, prayers and songs and holiday stuff. And she did sometimes, I mean, a lot of the times, she would sort of perk up. Yeah. She couldn't talk at that at that point, but... But I get what you're saying, and, and you know that I felt good. I still remember it. It was a long time ago. Um, so anyway, okay. So one of the main things that I want to talk about in the beginning of the show is your take on what to say and what not to say when you're in the presence of somebody who's lost a loved one. So why don't you just start out, you can either start with what to say or what not to say. I think I'd like to, say, to have you start out with what not to well, say. I was going to tell you what, what to say. If you have a friend who's terminally ill, yes, maybe not actively dying, but has a terminal illness, I have a lot of people say, you know, I feel uncomfortable visiting you know, in the, in the hospital or at home, what do I say? Right. You know, you don't have to say anything. Um, when I work with patients, uh, a lot of times it's, it's frustrating for me because I will hear things, I'm like the mediator, I will hear things from a patient that, you know, I'm sick, I don't feel good, I want to let go, I'm tired. And then the family comes in and they're like cheerleaders, I call them. You yeah. know, it's hang in there, you're strong, fight yeah. it, you know, what do the doctors know? You might live a long time, you know, they, they give what, what I call the guilt to someone who has a terminal illness. Yeah. You know, they make them feel like they have to go on and on and, you know, do another round of chemo, take some more medicine, it might help, you know, you have to be here because yeah, Susie's yeah. getting married, you know, where so-and-so's having a baby, they give the dying person a lot of guilt. So I try to very nicely tell the family members, you know, you have to put yourself in their position. You know, someone who's been through a bunch of chemotherapy, whatever, they're, they're, they're burned out. They're tired. They're hurting. And they're ready the family to go. comes in, they try to put on, you know, a smile and a nice face. How you doing? Oh, I'm fine. You know, but to me, they say, oh, my God, you know, let me go. I don't want to do this anymore. I so think that's one reason that 
people die when all their family is downstairs in the cafeteria. Oh, oh, let me tell you a couple of stories there. I, um, I worked with a, a nice gentleman. He must have had 15 family members <laughs> in the room at all times. Yeah. And one of the daughters came out one day, and she said, what can we do? We tell him we love him. It's okay to go. You know, let go. It's all right. We'll remember you. And I wanted to say, get out of the room. <laughs> <laughs> I want to shake her and say, get out. Everybody get right. out. A lot of time, I, I believe a lot of times people die when they want to. Yep. And a lot of times they don't want to die with their family, their loved ones there. So it just happened that everybody was out of the room. Like a day later, everyone was out of the room. He died when everybody was gone. And, you know, they were frustrated, but what are you going to do? You you hear the stories. Elizabeth Kubler-Ross always told the story of uh, a woman who was dying. And children were coming from all across the the country. Donalyn, hold on. We need to take a break now. So keep that story in mind. And when we come back from the break, you'll lead off with that story. Okay? Okay. Yes. All right, everybody. Don't go anywhere. Donalyn and I will be right back. what makes the most successful people tick. Keep listening to the Voice America Empowerment Channel. VoiceAmericaEmpowerment.com Believe it or not, the Bible talks a lot about grief and healing and can be a powerful source for us to move forward. For example, after Moses led the Israelites out of Egypt where they'd been slaves, they wandered in the desert for 40 years before God would let them into the promised land. God only wanted those who'd been born free, who'd never known slavery, to enter Israel. Those who had been slaves had to die out before their descendants would be allowed to enter the promised land. Find out more in Rabbi Mel Glazer's award-winning book, And God Created Hope. Available at Amazon and in Kindle format. When you're wandering after a life loss, you're really wandering in two directions at the same time. Part of you wants to go back, and part of you wants to go forward. That was also true of the Israelites when they were wandering in the desert with Moses. They didn't want to go back to being slaves, of course, but they did want to go back to the familiarity of home in Egypt. It was predictable and known, and they were afraid, like everyone is, of the unknown. Find out more in Rabbi Mel Glazer's award-winning book, A GPS for Grief and Healing, available at Amazon and in Kindle format. Success starts here. VoiceAmericaEmpowerment.com. It's your world. You are listening to From Morning to Morning. To find out more about our program, visit GriefOK.com. Again, that's GriefOK.com. Now, back to From Morning to Morning. Hello, everybody. Rabbi Mel back with my 
new friend and guest, Dr. Donalyn Gross. She's a thanatologist, and she's uh, going to tell us a story from Elizabeth Kubler-Ross of Blessed Memory, who is the, the dean of Stages of Grief. She's the one who wrote the book about Stages of Grief, and Donalyn's got a story. Go for it. Well, I was saying that uh, Elizabeth always told the story about a woman who was dying, and her children were coming from all around the country, and she was waiting for one son who was coming from California, and he finally got there, and they got to talk a little while and say their goodbyes, and she died. You know, she waited. Yep. Everybody's different. Um, it's, you know, I, as I said... I, I tell families nicely, understand what the person's going through. You know, don't be the cheerleader. Don't tell them to fight it and be tough and strong if they don't yeah. want to be. You know, what can you say to somebody who's dying? You can say, I'm here for you. You know, how can I help? How do you feel? May I sit with you? I used to walk in the wards and, you know, people would say, how do you go in there and, and start talking to somebody? I'd walk into the room, and I'd sit down in the chair next to the person, and I'd say, oh, my feet are killing me. I've had such a rough day. Can I sit here for a minute and just rest? And the person would perk up automatically. You know, anybody in a nursing home or hospital, they love attention. They love it to have someone to come in and talk to them. You know, you can sit there and say, oh, look at that picture. Is that your wedding picture, you know, or is that your dog? Start a conversation. You know, I admire you for your strength. You know, talk about favorite things, happy things. You know, you don't have to talk. Hold a hand. Right. I find that when people are very sick or dying, um, they have what they call a skin hunger. You know, did you ever just want to be held held by somebody. It just makes you feel so good. You know, you don't have to jump on them and give them a bear hug. A touch on the shoulder, it means a lot. You know, that that shows to the person, you're not sick, you're not ugly to me. I love you. You know, I care about you. When I I used to leave the wards at the prison, I I would hug each guy goodbye when I left every day, and it it used to make some of the guards very angry. But, you know, people with AIDS especially, nobody wants to touch them. Sure. When you have a sick person, you know, a sick person feels ugly, and no one wants to be around them, no one wants to look at them. Pay a little attention. Very simple. It's very interesting when you talk about the dying like to be touched and held. It's it's just like it was when we were born. Exactly. When we wanted to be held and touched and yeah. just the human feeling it is. Uh, it's, it's conveyed saying, love. You know, you're not ugly. You know, I care about you. And, and also, and I want to person. bring up, remember that the dying can hear you. They yes. say hearing is the last sense to go. Oh. I had a woman who was supposedly actively dying, and she had two daughters, and one was standing on either side of the bed, and they were arguing about who was going to get the silver. Oh, and the my woman God. opened her eyes and said, I'm not dead yet. 
I, I, yeah. Oh, you hear things. And listen, I recommend, do not, do not start talking about funeral plans and burial and cremation, whatever, while you're in the room with that person. You know, you hear the stories on the news a lot these days about someone who's had surgery and they've come out of the anesthesia afterwards and they've told the doctor and the nurses what they were talking about. <laughs> and they've had some lawsuits about that. Yeah, you can hear up until the end. So I, I tell people, if you're going to start talking about final plans and, and coffins and caskets and whatever, do it out in the hall. Well, I, I agree with you, but earlier in the process, you know, when I go visiting uh, hospices and they're still alert and they're still thinking and they're still, you know, they can still laugh and talk and smile and all that, sometimes I will then talk to them about their funeral. I will ask them, for example, um, what would you like me to say about you? Oh, I think that's wonderful. Yes, if they're if they're alert. Oh, I think yep. that's terrific. Well, you know, it, it makes them feel that it has like to, I, I trust them and I treat them as still being a human being. They're not they're, dead yet. They're still alive. Yes, yes. I think okay. you know personally. I got some crazy opinions, but personally, I think there should be a law that when you turn sixteen. Everybody should have a will, a yeah. living will, done. You never know. You could go out today and get uh, whacked by a bus. What's yeah. going to happen? You know, what are they get? What are they going to do with you? Do they know what you're going to want? You can change it as many times as you want to. You yeah. gotta make plans. You have to make plans. I, I, you know, I teach in the college level. And it, just, it amazes me. Kids don't know what a will is, what a living will is. And I, when they go home for Thanksgiving vacation, I say, here's an assignment. Talk to your families about it. See what they want done. You know, do they have wills? Do they have living wills? It's important because I've seen so many people die and nobody knew what they wanted. It's important and it's difficult and sometimes... Uh, I mean, today's youth, they don't know anything. They don't know about life. They yeah. haven't, most of them, not lost anybody. Yeah. So I was going to ask you about that. I mean, when they walk into your class first day, what do you do to shake them up? <laughs> oh, God. Well, first, the first thing I have them do is I give them all crayons and paper, and I ask them to draw death. I say, what do you, how do you see death? What does death look like? Right. And I get some amazing pictures. I do this when I do my workshops for nurses and social workers or medical personnel. I do this all the time, and you get the most amazing pictures. You know, how do people picture death? I have them fill out a form. You know, what are your goals in taking this course? What are you most afraid of? A lot of them say they, they're afraid they're going to cry. Huh, it's okay to cry. You know, that's it's, it's just, they're afraid they, of. They, they go into the course, they know it's some. I tell them, I said, this is one course that you are going to use over and over and over in your lifetime. You can take math, you can take science, you can take history. This you're going to remember. And I've gotten cards from older st students from years back, 
and they said, oh, it's so, I'm so glad I took your course because Uncle Fred died and I knew what to say and what to do and I helped the family I'm, out. So, uh. I'm sure you remember uh, the show Quincy. Oh, I loved it. I wanted to be Quincy, yes. Jack, yeah, with Jack Klugman. I loved him. And, uh, the first time, so he walked in and all his medical students were there and the, the dead body is covered up by a sheet. And with a flourish, because he knows exactly what's going to happen, <laughs> he, he, you know, he removes the sheet and six guys faint. <laughs> and that's the way every episode, I loved it. I yeah. just loved it. Yeah. Because most people do not come into contact with death. I mean, you know that we prepare um, the dead. We wash their bodies. We dress them in a white shroud. We physically lift them up and put them in a wooden coffin, and we uh, close the coffin, and then we sit with them until the funeral tomorrow morning. And the first time, you know, I invite people to join this group, uh, they're a little, they're they're a little more than they're a lot skittish about it because they've never seen a dead body, and I say to them. You know what? It only hurts the first time. <laughs> After you do the first one, it's 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 a great deed that you're doing, and you're going to feel spectacular yeah, when you walk to the funeral home because you have done one of the most important things you could for another human being. Yes. A lot of yes. times people ask me, they say, how do you do this? And the, I've, I've been with hundreds of people as they died, and it's it's weird. They say, well, "How can you do it?" I don't want I don't want to use the word high, but it makes me feel spiritually good. Yep. I, I yep. don't know what term to use, That's but exactly it, what you mean. You're energized. Yeah, yeah. And a lot of times, I'm there for people who have no family members. Yeah. You know, it, at the nursing home that I worked with, um, I started my good endings program. And we started vigil teams, and we sat. We had all staff members volunteer, and we sat round the clock with people and took shifts and everything. And it, it was a wonderful thing to do. Yeah. And uh, but some people can't do it. You know, some people just. You know, I, I tell my students. You know, if if you have a friend who's in the hospital. You know, go visit them, and some of them say, oh, my God, I, I can't do hospitals. I don't like the smell. I got a bad memory, something like that. I say, if someone's sick, they're in the hospital, and you can't go, call them up, write a yeah. card, send in a clown or some balloons, <laughs> let them know that you're there for them, and you still care, and you love them. Right. You know, years ago, they did a survey, and they found out that a lot of the hospitals, they moved the terminally ill patients to the last room at the end of the hallway because they figured they couldn't really do anything for them. So they put them at the rooms at the end of the hall. And they also did a survey, and they found out that nurses took longer to answer the call bell of someone who was dying. You know, I'm glad you said that because I got a story when I was growing up in Atlanta. So... And and then when I came back from college to visit and all that, so I used to spend time in hospitals. And I remember that um, they did. They put the dead, the, the nearly dying, you know, far away. And 
And in those days, when your heart stopped, all the bells, it's like you win the lottery at Vegas. All the bells go off and the whistles go off and 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 this and the head nurse, I'll never forget this wonderful woman, big black, wonderful, loving uh, head nurse, and she would say she would walk very slowly to to see what's going on. So I said, Why are you walking so slowly? And she says, Because I firmly believe that when God wants you, God gets you. <laughs> it's not my job. I don't want to run in there and restart your heart and give you, you know, uh, clear and then give you some some juice. I don't want to do that. Yeah. When it's time for you to go, it's time for you to go. I have always remembered that. Yeah. And that's the whole thing about doing a living will. You know, yeah. what, do you, what do you want? Do you want to be kept alive by machines? That's up to you. You know, but you got to get the word out. I tell people, I say, you know, put it on videotape, do, do, do a voice tape, something. Uh, give copies to everybody. Let everybody know what you want. Because so many times I have seen a person dying the way they did not want to die. Yep. And a lot of the times the family members will come in. Even It's awful. Even if you, you've got the living will and you say, I don't want anything, just let me go. I have seen families come in and they say, oh, I can't do it. I can't do it. It's my dad. It's my mom. It's my kid. I can't do it. We've got to keep them alive. And they totally screw you up. So you yep. really, and, and I, I strongly advise when you do a living will and you pick a couple of proxies, you know, if you can't communicate, the doctor will call you, the two proxies, and ask what this person wanted. I recommend don't pick a family member. They love you, and they're yeah. going to get the guilts, and they're going to keep you alive. I've seen it over and over and over. Pick somebody else who knows they'll do what you want. Yeah. I, I remember um, my favorite story is when I was in... Um, God, I don't know where I was, Miami. So somebody, uh, Jack, I don't remember his name, Cy was dying. And he was in a hospice and he was in the last stages and he was actively dying. And his wife, now Cy was like 86, 7, 8, 9, something like that. And his wife uh, didn't want him to die. And she kept telling him, Cy, don't die, don't die, don't die. Oh. Well, uh, the whole family's in a room, and I'm there as his rabbi, and finally Cy takes his last breath. And something happened that I hope I never see again, and that is the wife started beating on his chest oh. to start a, to restart the breathing. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, you know, for a minute or so, I didn't know what to do, and then I said, okay, uh, you're the rabbi, you better say something smart. <laughs> so <laughs> that's what God told me to do. So I took her in my arms and I said, it's okay. He's going to be with his parents. Yeah. And I'm hugging her at the same time. So she looks up at me and she says, Rabbi Sai couldn't stand his parents. <laughs> and oh it broke God. the tension and everybody started laughing hysterically. Oh my God. Because the tension that was no longer there. So, I later found out that all the nurses who were outside the door in the hospice were wondering about this crazy rabbi and what could he possibly say to a family. The guy's dying, died, 
and everybody's laughing. <laughs> but that's what you do. She was out of control. Yeah. I had to do anything. I had to do something to calm her down, or she might have died right there. Really? Because she didn't know what to do without them. I mean, yeah. they were married, you know, 100 years. and well, People do she, die from broken hearts. I understand that, right? Yeah, that's happened, yeah. Well, look at... Um, Debbie Reynolds. Yes, yeah. correct. Yep. That's right. Broken heart. Yeah. And she did. And I, I learned that there is a syndrome called broken heart that's syndrome. True. Yes. I didn't I didn't know that until she died after her daughter died. Yeah. I just didn't know it, but yeah. yeah. On the other hand, some people as you say they want to live to the next uh, wedding or the next family joyous occasion and they yes. stick around. I sat I sat one time when I worked in the prison. I sat for 9 hours with a guy Wow. And he wanted he wanted to die. He said to rock and roll. So we we kept the oldies classic station yep. on, and I sat with him and sat with him. I had to go up and, and go out and go to the ladies' room, which I did. I came yep. back and he had died. I was so angry at myself. I thought, oh, but I realized, you know, maybe he wanted to go alone. You know. All right, we gotta we gotta take another break. Okay. See, I told you it's it goes fast. <laughs> So we are going to take a break, and if you're listening to this show, do not go anywhere. We'll be right back. Follow us on Twitter for more great ideas at Voice America Empowerment. When you're wandering after a life loss, you're really wandering in two directions at the same time. Part of you wants to go back, and part of you wants to go forward. That was also true of the Israelites when they were wandering in the desert with Moses. They didn't want to go back to being slaves, of course, but they did want to go back to the familiarity of home in Egypt. It was predictable and known, and they were afraid, like everyone is, of the unknown. Find out more in Rabbi Mel Glazer's award-winning book, A GPS for Grief and Healing, available at Amazon and in Kindle format. Believe it or not, the Bible talks a lot about grief and healing and can be a powerful source for us to move forward. For example, after Moses led the Israelites out of Egypt where they'd been slaves, they wandered in the desert for 40 years before God would let them into the promised land. God only wanted those who'd been born free, who'd never known slavery, to enter Israel. Those who had been slaves had to die out before their descendants would be allowed to enter the Promised Land. Find out more in Rabbi Mel Glazer's award-winning book, And God Created Hope. Available at Amazon and in Kindle format. Success starts here. VoiceAmericaEmpowerment.com. It's your world. You are listening to From Morning to Morning. To find out more about our program, visit GriefOK.com. Again, that's GriefOK.com. Now, back to From Morning to Morning. 
everybody, Rabbi Mel. I'm back with my guest, Donald Gross, who's a thanatologist, and we've been just having the dandiest time. <laughs> and we were talking in the beginning that um, us grief folks are the happiest people in the world because we are energized by being able to help those who are dying, them and their families. It does something. I would rather do uh, three funerals a day than do a wedding because, and people think I'm crazy when I say that, but you sort of know what I mean. When I do a wedding, they don't really care about me. They're not listening to me. They don't listen to me when I do counseling, premarital counseling. They're not interested. All they want to do is for me to pronounce, say, uh, by the power vested in me by the state of Colorado, I hear I pronounce you husband and wife, and everybody screams and hollers and kisses the bride and all that, and then they go to hors d'oeuvres and they just have a good time. They don't listen. But when I'm dealing with a family whose loved one is dying, that's when their hearts open up and that's when they listen to me. And that's when I can be a real rabbi because um, because they're in a state where their resistance is weak and they don't resist what I have to say and they'll and we can talk seriously. But I don't want to talk about that. I well, you know something you're ve- you're very lucky because you know, you get a chance to know the person and you do right. the funeral for them. I've right. been to some funerals. Oh my gosh. The, the the priest, the rabbi, whoever got up there, they didn't know the person before. Right. And I went to one funeral, he gave the wrong name of the person. Yeah. You know, they, they get like 15 minutes with the family. Tell me about the person. You know, it's just very, very impersonal. That's you know? why I don't do biographies anymore at funerals. Yeah. It used to be that clergy, that the standardized way to do it was you'd go to the house the, the day before yeah. with your pen and paper in hand And you would say, tell me about Jack, and you'd write it all down. And then I would go home, and I would dress it up with some biblical ribbon around it, you know, and then I would regurgitate what they said to me at the funeral. So uh, I did that until I went to a conference, a rabbinical conference, and one of the vice chancellors of the Jewish Theological Seminary where I was ordained, said boys, it was just boys at the time. Thank God there are women in the rabbinate now. <laughs> he used to say, boys, don't do that anymore. We were shocked because that's what we're used to doing. Yeah. Why not? Because, he said, there are two kinds of people at every funeral. Those that knew him and those that did not know him. Yes. Oh. So those that knew him, you don't have to do a biography because they knew him. And those that didn't know him, we'll ask those who knew him, and you don't have to do it. You talk about values. Yeah. So what I do is I, when I meet with a family, I say, I want three people to talk for three minutes apiece at the funeral. And I want you to tell stories, and I want you to talk about values. What did he stand for? What lessons did he teach you? Yeah. That is way better. Way, way, way better. And a lot of funerals now, they have, you know, people are not always wearing black clothes, but they've got the picture boards now. 
and oh, they have articles of clothing or something, sports regalia, any, you know, things like that that the person loved. And I've been to funerals where they take a microphone, a wireless mic, and they pass it around the room, and everybody can say something about the person, which is really cool. It's like in a bar mitzvah, you know, they make a yeah. video of the kid. So they make a video of the guy who died, and they show this video, like, who wants to see that? <laughs> but maybe it gives the family comfort. I don't know. Now, you can you've got on some, your own, you know. I know. You've got some funeral stories that I want to hear. Oh, God. Well, you know, funerals, I think, definitely are for the living, okay? I, th- I think people read the newspaper and they see something like, oh, my God, that's my second grade teacher. i got to go to the funeral. You know, right. when, when my dad died, I, I stood out at the front, you know, had the receiving line, people going through, and I had so many people, oh, I remember you when you were this big, you know, and I'm thinking, who the heck are you? <laughs> you know, I don't know half of these people, but it's kind of like a party. But I, some of the, I got to tell you, some of the things that I've heard people say at a funeral to somebody who's grieving, you don't want to say, how are you doing? Yeah. He's better off. Try to look for the good in this situation. Yeah. You know, I know how you feel. Don't ever, ever, ever tell a grieving person, I know how you feel. If my dad died the same way your dad died, it's not the same thing, and people get very angry. Don't ever say, I know how you feel. You don't know how anybody feels. Yeah. I've heard, you're young, you can get married again. You know, don't take this too hard. You know, someone said, something seems fishy to me. I hope they do an autopsy. (laughs) Oh, God. You you need to pray more. It was God's will. You know, God doesn't give us any more than we can handle. You're not the first person. Yeah, when somebody says that, I get viscerally angry. I said, no, this is not God. The guy's body fell, fell apart, and that's what happens. Yeah. And don't blame this one on God. God's not responsible for this. Don't you dare. Yeah. Because especially with kids, you know, if you, if you, if you say to a six-year-old, uh, God needed your sister more than you did. Oh, yes. That's it between you and God. That's it. You don't want to talk to God anymore. You know, the, there's a famous joke about you were talking about ministers who didn't know uh, the the deceased. So, so there's a wonderful joke about a guy, a minister just like that, who meets the family two minutes before the funeral. He has no clue who this guy is. So he gets up on the podium and he looks at the family and he says, I know you're very sad today. So I want somebody to say something good about Jack. Nobody says a word. So the minister says, I know it's hard and I know that you're really sad, but, you know, you really, it's a tradition that you should honor the dead by saying something good. So who would like to say something nice about Jack? Nobody says a word. Minister gets angry, bangs on the on the podium and says, we're not leaving here until somebody says something good about Jack. All of a sudden, an old guy in the back rises up and says, his brother was worse. <laughs> That's the famous... Jewish funeral joke, and sometimes that's all you get. I mean, you know, when Al Capone died, what are you going to say? Well, I know what the minister said. 
<laughs> that I didn't know and nobody knew. But the minister told the people who were there at the funeral that every Sunday Al Capone would get in his limo and he'd have his driver drive him an hour and a half to his mother's nursing home. And he would spend the day with her and then he would drive back. Yeah. Now, that's that's all I needed to hear. Yeah. I mean, Al Capone got to heaven for that one. Really? One of these days they're going to find him in Wrigley Field. Oh. I'm convinced. <laughs> Somebody's going to find that guy. Oh, God. So, yeah, I mean, funerals, they're not like what they used to be. Like I said to you, I've heard people pick up their ringing cell phones during funerals. Yeah. And I get so angry when people do that. I say, have you no respect? Yeah. Well, the answer is no. They don't have any respect. Yeah. Now, on the other side, I believe it is true. Nobody, except people like you and I, uh, teach people what to say and what not to say. Society does not deal with losing things, whether it's people or, or anything else. For example, if you walk into a businessman's private office, you will find his desk piled high with papers. Why? Because he can't throw stuff out. <laughs> or when people move from one, one place to another, the hardest thing to do is to get rid of stuff. Because we're not taught how to do that. Right. And because it's not the stuff that matters, it's the memories that go with the stuff. Mm -hmm. And so it's real hard to do that. So when somebody dies, you don't know what to do. I was not allowed to go to my daddy's funeral. Yeah. I was 12 years old. And my, my mother, a blessed memory, would not. And the family chimed in. I had 11 aunts and uncles. Family chimed in, and the family said, no, Melvin is not going to the funeral. Me and my sister and brother were not happy, and today, when somebody dies, I, I talk to the parents, and I say, you, if the kid is old enough to have had a relationship with this person, you have to take him to the funeral, and you have to take him to the cemetery. Yeah. Otherwise, he's going to have nightmares because he's going to think it's worse than it really is. The fact yeah. of the matter is that going to a cemetery is, is, is not a big deal. And, and people take earth, you know, at the end and help and begin to fill in the grave. And it's, it's a really cool experience. I mean, uh, and I have lots of Jews and non-Jews and non-Jews who've never been exposed to that feel that in a way, in, in a place where they lose their power, because over life and death, you have no power. Yeah. So at least you can begin to, you can take an action and you can begin to fill in the grave. And so you will have some sense of symbolic power. So you don't leave the cemetery thinking, oh my God, he died and there was nothing I could do. Yeah. So I think that things uh, are getting better. They are. They are. There's more death education in the schools. Uh, right. Doctors are getting more death education in medical school, which is wonderful. It's it's coming slowly, but I know. And now and now with the music, you know, there that we have therapeutic music people playing right. in hospitals, hospices, and everything. There and are it's choirs. Uh, I, uh, there are choirs that go 
to hospices and sing? Yeah, yeah. I think it's wonderful. It is. It is. Um, it's changing slowly. You're right. And uh, people are still afraid, but less people are less afraid. And, and that's a wonderful thing. I'm just reading something that I got yesterday about a bereavement cruise in 2018 that I'm going to see if I can be a part of. Uh, I never, I mean, I've always wanted to do that. Yeah. But, you know, somebody else doing it, and I'm going to see if I can take part in it, because I think it's a great idea. You're on a cruise, so you're, you're by yourself. I mean, you're with people who understand you. You're in a group situation. Yeah. There's private time, you know, for counselors to talk to you and give you some private therapy, and I think it's a wonderful idea. It's a great learning experience. It is a great learning experience, and um, we'll see what happens. Anyway, it's almost time to go. Oh, that went fast. I know. It's, you know, it's just, it's very sad. But but my man Aaron, he says we got two minutes left. And in a minute, he's going to tell me we got one minute left. And so <laughs> it's, it's going to be time to go. So I want to thank you so much. Thank you. For coming on and being my guest and helping educate people. If people need you, how can they get a hold of you? Oh, well, um, they can just Google my name. Okay. Okay. Google my and, name, yeah. Or and, if, they, if they're interested in my book, uh, What Does Death Look Like? That's a collection of all the drawings by a lot of the people I've worked with. They can get that I, from exlibris.com. Okay. And uh, I have a harp music CD on... Uh, cdbaby.com, Music for the Dying. Okay. And uh, I'm all over. I've done a lot of articles and books, and they're all on the website. You can just Google my name and find out everything about me. (laughs) Good. Well, I want to thank you. If anybody wants to get a hold of me, I don't know why you'd want to do that, but if you do, it's Rabbi Mel at griefok.com. Rabbi Mel at griefok.com. Donald, thank you so much. Thank you. Gentlemen out there in Radio Land, thank you for listening, and we'll be together next week. Good night, everybody. Thank you again for joining Rabbi Mel Glazer for From Morning to Morning. Please tune in again next Thursday at 8 p.m. Eastern Time and 5 p.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Empowerment Channel. We're wishing you strength and hope in the next week.